Amen. Now, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, as tonight we continue our study in Paul's letter to a young minister and through him to the church at Ephesus. Appreciate it again, Dr. Bruce preaching the last couple of weeks as he picked up uh, where we left off or where I left off before I left town. And so the last couple of weeks we've looked at things like the need for the church to have godly overseers, elders, as well as godly deacons and godly assistants and and all this because the church is the household of God, the pillar and foundation of the faith. Now at chapter 4, Paul turns to, uh, in some ways, new topics, and particularly tonight, uh, Christian godliness and growth. And he begins with a warning about bad teaching that leads to bad living and how very appropriate, having spoken of the need for godly teachers in the church, he's going to now speak of how bad it can be if the teaching is really bad. Uh, But there's a positive word at the end. So that's what we'll consider tonight, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Hear now the word of God. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Amen. This is God's word. May he cut our hearts with it tonight. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. Enlighten the eyes of our mind in the knowledge of Jesus. Keep us, uh, we pray, from turning neither to the right nor to the left, drifting away, falling away as we've read. But, but help us. Help us to truly know you and rejoice in you and your gifts. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A young man got interested in Jesus when he was about 13. By 15, he had entered a monastery, but he was so weird and his behavior was so extreme that he wasn't allowed to stay. So upon leaving, he shut himself up in a hut for a year and a half. Afterwards, he lived on a narrow ledge of a mountain slope for a year and a half. He's one of the most famous examples of what are called the desert fathers or desert pilgrims of the 2nd through 5th century. People who left cities and towns to live in the wilderness, live in the desert, live away and live in deprivation. People who rejected the comforts and enjoyments of things like homes, bathing, 
clean clothing, the marriage bed, and delicious foods. This particular man, Simeon, died on September 2nd in the year 459. He lived the last years of his life on a platform built high on a post, high off the ground where nobody could reach him but by ladder. He never once left his perch in 37 years and died there. But he developed a massive following and disciples. Many sought his counsel. Many imitated his lifestyle. Many thought his kind of life was the way to true Christian holiness and godliness. And he and they were wrong according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Paul speaks of bad teaching that leads to bad living, and then of good teaching that leads to grateful living. And I want to show you why this man was wrong, and that's not what God requires of you to follow him. Let's uh, look at this passage together and work our way through it, and see positively what he does call us to. And basically there are five verses, and you might say there's a five-point outline here. Verse 1, he speaks of false Christians, those who've fallen away. Verse 2, he speaks of false teachers who teach doctrines of demons. Verse 3, he speaks of the actual teaching these false teachers teach, uh, the things they require people to abstain from, and, and we'll talk about what's behind that. And then at verse he gives the antidote, the true Christian antidote to that kind of false thinking, false teaching. And at verse 5, how we ought to as Christians think about God and the world that he has made and our place and use in it and of it. So, in the first place, verse 1, Paul here speaks of false Christians when he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. This, friends, is a problem he's talking about that's not outside the church. It's a problem in the church. These are people who were in, who are leaving. Uh, And Paul says, I don't want you to be surprised when this happens. When people say they believe in Jesus, and then months, years, or even days later, turn right around and say they don't believe in Jesus and want nothing to do with Jesus. Early in the ministry of Billy Graham, he had an accompany, uh, he was accompanied on evangelistic crusades by a guy named Mr. Templeton. They were partners in these evangelistic crusades. They preached together all over the United States. They were both Bible college graduates, uh, uh, though they had no uh, formal education beyond that in Uh, in the Bible, and they talked much about the need to be formally trained more and more in Bible doctrine at the seminary level, and so eventually Mr. Templeton said, I'm going to go off and get trained, and he actually left, and he went to uh, what at that time was the most, perhaps, not unreasonably, the most famous Presbyterian seminary in all the world, and unfortunately was terribly liberal, and uh, at some point in his education, just about a semester into it, Templeton lost his trust in the authority of God's word, and he began to write to Billy Graham things like this. Billy, we're a hundred years behind what they're teaching in seminary. We've got to get up to date. We're wrong in what we're saying. And 
Billy Graham, with great sadness in his heart, wrote back to his friend and said, I am standing on the truth of the word of God. Eventually, however, his friend left the faith entirely. Can you imagine, of course, how discouraging that would have been for Billy Graham? The apostle, maybe you've had an experience, not just like that, but you've known friends or family members, people from afar that you respected in the church, and at some point they pulled up and they moved out. Uh, Paul here says, don't be surprised when that happens. I mean, don't let it drive you to despair as if it's some strange and pe- peculiar thing uh, that, that should not, cannot, and will not ever be. In fact, Paul is saying to us here, God's word isn't failing when that happens. God's word is actually being fulfilled when that happens because the Spirit expressly says that that kind of thing will happen. And so it does. Now, where does, where does the Spirit say this? Uh, perhaps Paul is thinking of uh, Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 24, which are then given to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the, in the book of Matthew, when, when Jesus says, many false Christs and many false prophets will come and lead many astray. Uh, maybe Paul has in mind his own prophetic words to the elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. When he took his leave of them in tears because they loved one another. But he said, after my departure, many false wolves will come in among you and uh, destroy or seek to destroy the flock and certainly lead many disciples away. Uh, We're not 100% sure what Paul has in mind when he says the Spirit expressly states this. But clearly what's being said is that this is going to happen. Now, when is it going to happen? Well, Paul says, in later times. Now, what are those later times? He doesn't mean much later, like, you know, 2,000 years from now. Y'all don't need to worry about this here and now in Paul's day, but, but way, way, way down the road, this is when you need to worry about this. But instead, he's describing a situation Timothy himself is going to face. And in fact, at verse 3, he, he quits speaking in the future and speaks in present tense when he says, People are doing these very things that the Spirit warned they would do. He uses the language then of later times, not by talking about some far distant future, but even those things that the people of God in his day would experience. They had already begun. People had begun to depart the faith. Now, now you have to ask yourself, now what is it that's really happening there? And I don't want you to misunderstand what's happening there. Is Paul saying that true, genuine Christians are, are becoming non-Christians. Is that what he's describing here? And he's not. Paul does not mean that some people became true Christians, meaning they got new life by the Holy Spirit, passed over from death to life, had new hearts given to them, truly rested and trusted in Jesus to be their Savior, reunited to Jesus And then they lost their salvation and God takes away everything he promised to them in Jesus. That's not what he's talking about here. Paul is is speaking of people who professed to believe, uh, professed faith in Jesus, but eventually renounced that faith and fell away or apostatized, revealing that they had never actually experienced God's grace in the first place, not saving grace. 
Why do I say that? I say that because of 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. If you wanted to look there for a moment, 1 John 2, 19. The Apostle John says this about people in this kind of situation. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they all are not of us. In other words, what he doesn't say there is, they were of us, and now they're not of us. He actually says they left because they weren't of us, even though they were around us. See, this is what's happening. The people who profess to believe in Jesus have been led astray and have walked away from Jesus. That doesn't mean true Christians have lost their salvation. But this happens, and we should never be surprised when this happens. You know that the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, and the Christian scientists all all came out of evangelical Orthodox churches in the mid-1800s. But they abandoned those professions of faith to start their new things. Now, how does someone go from professing faith in Jesus to being one who rejects Jesus. And Paul says it's here by listening to false teachers. By listening to false teachers. That's verse 2. And he tells you about the character of these false teachers being warped. How do they leave? Uh, by listening to these false teachers, he says, uh, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now, you have to ask the question, do they know that they're following demons? And I would say, not likely. It's, after all, the teaching of deceitful spirits. They're like Eve in the garden, having been deceived by the devil himself. But they've begun to go astray, and they've been deceived into going astray. And what they are, in fact, doing is is propagating the doctrine or teaching that demons want propagated. And these teachers themselves are characterized by lying, by, hip- by insincerity or hypocrisy, and by a seared conscience. In other words, at some point, they are liars because they oppose the truth. And they lie about God and his word. And they're hypocrites and insincere, he says, because probably what he means is they're telling other people to do things they themselves aren't really willing to do. And he says they have a conscience which is seared, seared like with a hot iron. Their, their moral sensibilities have become insensitive or scabbed over, and they, they're not even sensitive to a right and wrong here. They've been cauterized. You know, if you've, if you've poured a, a pot of tea boiling hot and, and you drank it too quickly and you burned your tongue, you know how for... For a while, anyway, you don't seem able to taste anything else. You've, you've seared your tongue, so to speak. Well, that's what's happened here. They've seared their conscience by overexposure to sin and indulgence in it. And they've become increasingly desensitized to what's right and wrong, what's good and what's bad. And they, they're all in now. That's who these false teachers are, insensitive to truth. Their character is warped. And they've ended up being devoted to the doctrine of demons. 
What is it they're teaching? What is this doctrine? This is the third thing, the false teaching. He says, uh, they, verse 3, forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So what they teach is asceticism, an extreme form of self-denial. They deny to their disciples the pleasure and enjoyment of the good things given by a good father who loves his children. And they say, you can't have those things. You won't grow as a Christian if you enjoy those things. That's what they say. If you are familiar with C.S. Lewis and his book, Screwtape Letters, um, it's subtitled, A Devil's Diabolical Advice for the Capturing of the Human Heart. In it, he imagines an older demon, Wormwood, uh, uh, sorry, Screwtape, writing to his nephew, the younger demon named Wormwood. And he's giving him advice on how to mess people up and how to mess Christians up in their walk. And, and one of the things that Lewis tells us about through the words of a demon, imaginatively of course, not infallibly, are this. The older demon writes to the younger demon and now for your blunders. On your own showing, you first of all allowed the patient, that's a Christian or a person, the patient, to read a book he really enjoyed because he enjoyed it and not in order to make clever remarks about it to his friends. And in the second place, you allowed him to walk down an old mill, to an old mill and have tea there, a walk through country he really likes and taken alone. In other words, you allowed him two real positive pleasures Were you so ignorant as to not see the danger of this? The characteristic of pains and pleasures is that they are unmistakably real. And therefore, as far as they go, give the man who feels them a touchstone of reality. His point in the letter as he goes on, Lewis goes on, uh, as Screwtape goes on, giving advice, is that the demon had been previously fooling the man about the nature of reality by giving him fake pleasures, making him enamored with vanity and bustle and irony and expensive tedium, things that are flippant and superfluous and fleeting and pleasures that make a man enamored with the world but not enamored with God. Now he says to this demon, you've let him enjoy real pleasure. And that's going to wake him up to the reality of a real pleasure creator. And make him consider that source, the giver of all good gifts. (laughs) And so, the point is, if you're not following it, if you're a devil, you don't want people thankful to God for his good creations. And here Paul mentions two specific ones. Uh, he, these false teachers in the demonic teaching is forbidding the marriage bed and certain kinds of foods. And where did that come from and why is that such a problem? Well, as we said, it comes on the one hand as the doctrine of demons. And on this point alone, I must say, I could never 
see myself being Roman Catholic just for this reason, because they forbid to church leaders the right to marry and require of them celibacy. And in doing so, it seems to me, have aligned themselves, however well-intentioned they may be in requiring that, have aligned themselves with those in error, uh, like uh, here in 1 Timothy, the kind of error that is the misleading of demons. But it's not just that this came from demons, it came through human teachers who are teaching this stuff. And where did they get these ideas? Well, they didn't just get them out of thin air. They come from probably both a Jewish and Gentile background. There was a, a Greek side, a Greek way of thinking, among some, uh, a, a philosophical idea that, that um, you know, that, that matter, that things of created stuff, the physical world, well, these things are evil. And what's good is the spiritual or, you know, the, the non-material And so then, salvation really is viewed as escape from created stuff. If created stuff is evil, let's get away from it. And pursuing that kind of line of reasoning meant as much as possible you lived a life of contemplation, but a life of deprivation from bodily pleasures and enjoyments. I mean, those things would be evil. Don't get involved in them. But there's a Jewish background or influence to this as well, we know is, uh, that the Old Testament, at, for a time, very properly by God's command, limited the food that the Jewish people could eat. Now we know that in Mark chapter 7, Jesus declared all foods clean. But maybe these people haven't realized it or have ignored him, haven't heard it, uh, misunderstood him, that all foods are now clean. But as it happens, as one commentator puts it, one thing we can learn from these examples are that both celibacy and vegetarianism are not part of God's general will for his people. And so for a church to demand such things from any of its people, to be a disciple, or to say the way to really grow as a Christian, you must do these things, is to engage in and promote error, even the doctrine of demons. Now, now absolutely, You are free to choose to eat meat or not meat as you want. And you you are free before God to choose to be married. Or if you believe he's called you to be single, have at it. But it is not for the church to command you in that direction. Or to say that there's a higher plane of spirituality held out to you if you will just pursue those things. And so they made a great number of errors. Let me just highlight in some of the ways they made error. They made an error with regard to who God is, who the devil is. Uh, They made an error with regard to the body. They made an error with regard to Christian growth. Regarding God, they present God as miserly, tight-fisted, uninterested in our enjoyments of creation. And in doing so, they dishonor him because he made the marriage bed. And he gave us taste buds and delicious food. They are his good creations. (laughs) And they're made for our enjoyment. So that when a man and a woman, for instance, who are husband and wife, lie together in bed, God doesn't blush at that. God smiles at that. It's his idea. 
But they also make an error with regard to the devil. They seem to be suggesting that the devil is the creator of these kinds of pleasures, of sex or filet mignon. (laughs) And uh, they seem to be saying that uh, wine is the devil's drink and not given by God to make glad the heart of man. And so it can easily become a way of saying, you know, uh, you know, on the one hand, all the, all the good things people enjoy, that's just the devil's territory. We should all stay away from that. Or on the other hand, it's a way of blaming God for our sins because, uh, you know, he allowed in his world all these good things that entice us that are off limits. And he's at fault when, in fact, we are at fault for the way we use these things. This is the same problem that comes about in Colossians chapter 2. If you were to flip over to Colossians chapter 2, the second half at verse 18, Paul says, or maybe just listen, Paul says at verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. Verse 21, their motto is do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Why do they say that? Verse 23 These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But, Paul says, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You see, the appeal of this kind of teaching is that it seems to promise you salvation from sin. But Paul is saying it doesn't really bring you that freedom because it misdiagnoses the problem. It says to us, not wrongly, that the body is the vehicle through which much sin is expressed. And of course it is. I live in a body and I express my sin in and through the faculties of my body. But then it goes on wrongly to say that therefore the way to overcome sin in your life is to deal harshly with the body. But our problem is not the desire of the body, it's the depravity of the heart. The early church father, Jerome, said he went out into the desert to be alone so he could escape sin. And he says the problem is 10,000 naked dancing women went out there with him. Now he doesn't really mean 10,000 women scantily clad went out in the desert with him, but he means he brought them with him in his heart. And he realized that the problem is not escaping from the world because he brought the world and its lusts with him in his own depraved heart. The problem is much deeper than your flesh, your skin, your nerve endings, your taste buds. And so do not touch, do not taste, do not handle is not a prescription to help you cure your heart. And so shrimp cocktail isn't your problem and strawberry rhubarb pie isn't your problem. (laughs) No, your problem is deeper than that. And so therefore, salvation will not be found either in giving over to the satisfaction of or completely depriving yourself of uh, the enjoyments of the body. Your salvation is found in the transformation of the heart. And it is only Christ who can affect that. And in Christ, all you who are in Christ... It has been affected in your life. You've been given new life and a new heart, and you are complete in Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean all your 
temptations go away or all your falling into sin goes away. But it does mean your freedom from sin is found in union with Jesus. And as Paul says in Romans 6, you have been united to Jesus. And in his death and resurrection, you participate. You have died with Christ to sin as a master with authority to rule you or command you. You are not a slave in Jesus to sin. Now we need to learn what it means and how to live that out. And we also need to learn what it means that we've been raised with Christ to new life. And so Paul will say in Romans 6 again, that, that part of that means we need to believe that's true about us. We've died and been raised. We're new. We're free. And now Paul will say in Romans 6, Therefore offer the parts of your body, not to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but to God as instruments of righteousness. And he actually uses the idea of instruments, the parts of your body as instruments, as the parts of your body as weapons of war. He's really saying... Offer your eyeballs and your fingertips and your sex organs and your gut, stomach, appetite, all the parts of your body. Offer them to God to be used as instruments of righteousness, not offering them to sin as instruments of wickedness. But that's going to take a heart that wants to do that, one that's united to Jesus. And so uh, part of the battle here for all of us who struggle with lust will be learning to receive and enjoy the marriage bed as one of God's great and good gifts to help us live righteously and righteously satisfy and express these kinds of desires. So they misdiagnosed the problem they thought wrongly about the body, wrongly about the Christian life and the place of the heart and our need for change. They thought a lot of wrong things here. And so Paul says uh, to them here, they've, they've missed the truth of God. And uh, at verse 4, he speaks of the truth of God in this way. Uh, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So their fundamental error is they set their own view of the Christian life over against God's view of the Christian life. And they lived according to their own wisdom. And they began to forbid what God allows. And when you do that, you will soon begin to allow what God forbids. False teaching leads in one of those two directions every time. It'll either be narrower than the word of God and not allow you the things that God in his word allows you. Or it will be broader and will allow to you things that God in his word has not allowed to you. And why does it do that? Because you have set yourself up as God, as the Holy Spirit, as the final decider of what's good for you. Now, how do we combat that? Paul says, you remember what God's word has already told you. You go back to the Bible. In fact, here he goes back to Genesis 1, when God made all things good. And it was very good. The Bible tells you he made it for his praise and his glory, and it made it for your enjoyment and for the good of his people. 
It's good because he's good. And so the answer to the abuse of our sexuality or the abuse of food isn't abstinence. And that must not be our prescription to believers who want to follow Jesus. The answer is actually, Paul says, thankfulness. The answer isn't to call the gifts evil and avoid them all on every occasion. But it is, in fact, to give thanks to the giver. And in doing so, one of the things we do is we dethrone sex or food or whatever it is as an idol in our life that says, worship me, because we've taken it in relationship with God before the throne of God and offered thanks to God because it's his good gift to us. And we praise him for it. So that sex and food and the good things of life are no longer idols to be loved instead of God, but things, good things to be received and enjoyed from God. Now, I want to say right here at the end, when it comes to food in our culture, we live in a foodie culture. Many of us do. Uh, I don't know how many different TV shows about food, cooking, chop, whatever, that I, I love to watch. And we live in a sensitive culture, too, about food issues. I mean, there's old school food and there's new school food. There's natural food grocery stores and there's whole food grocery stores. And there's no food your grandma ever heard of grocery stores. And some products have lists of ingredients that make you wonder if there's any real food in it. (laughs) I get it. But let's do be tolerant of one another when we make even different decisions about food as God has permitted us. What we must not do in the church is command the people of God or forbid from them what God has granted to them. And Paul goes on to say then that creation is good and we are to receive these things and these things are made holy by the word of God and prayer. God's word has already declared them holy. They're good. That's what the word of God does. And they become, in a sense, consecrated. And they become good to us as we return thanks to him. And then they're not abused improperly. G.K. Chesterton, a number of years Uh, back before he died, wrote in an unpublished at that time, um, some unpublished words. He said, um, he said, you say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the play and the opera and grace before the concert and the pantomime and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing. And grace before I dip the pen in the ink. What Chesterton was saying, of course, is that, yeah, thankful for meals, however you choose to express that thankfulness, it's one of the few times perhaps Christians in any given day give thanks to God. We shouldn't stop doing so. But in reality, we'd be just as justified to stop and say a prayer of thanks before we take every single breath, before we brush our teeth or Start our car or play with our children or make love to our spouse. And so Paul says, receive these good things and enjoy them with thanksgiving. And so to close a few lessons, number one, it is the responsibility of the teachers of God to actually encourage Christians to enjoy these good gifts with thankfulness to God. The church overseers must never publish 
required fast days or forbidden food lists, nor are they to demand vows of celibacy, contrary to this passage. We are to encourage the people of God to listen to God's word and not man-made rules about God's word. You are to submit your conscience to Jesus. He is Lord of your conscience. And he tells you here. And no man, and no tradition of man, even a long tradition of Christians, ought to rule, rule uh, your conscience. We are instead to be worldly people in the best sense of that word. We are to be people who appreciate and enjoy the world that God has made and receive its wonders with genuine thanksgiving. Love God and use the world. Don't use God and love the world. And you and I ought to be happy people with so much to be thankful for and so much to admire and enjoy in life. Because we know that our Heavenly Father made these things for us, for our enjoyment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your good creation. Forgive us for the ways in our own depravity we twist it, misuse it, abuse it, uh, and our ungratefulness to you in the use uh, and even the enjoyment. Uh, Make us truly thankful people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.